A terrible disaster occurred in Britain. Two cities were sacked, 80,000 of the Romans and their allies perished, and the island was lost to Rome. Moreover, all this ruin was brought upon the Romans by a woman, a fact which in itself caused them the greatest shame. But the person who was chiefly instrumental in rousing the natives and persuading them to fight the Romans, the person who was thought worthy to be their leader and who directed the conduct of the entire war, was Boudicca, a Briton woman of the royal family and possessed of a greater intelligence than often belongs to women. Welcome to Gallus Girls and Wayward Women, a history of the British Isles. I'm Donna. And I'm Tom. And this podcast is really aiming to look at some of the famous and perhaps slightly less well-known women that have uh, forged paths in the history of these islands. So Donna, who are we going to kick off our first ever episode looking at? Well, today we are going to talk about Boudicca. Oofed. Queen of the Iceni, mm-hmm. known for a long time as Boudicca. Yeah. Boudicca is the form given by the Roman historian Tacitus, and it's the only contemporary rendering of the name. Cassius Dio, another Roman historian, translates the name as Buduica. What do you know about Boudicca, well, Tom? Uh, it's funny you should say that, because when I was a kid, I always called her Boudicca, and um, being brought up by... Uh, rampant feminists you know she was a big um a big factor in my early awareness of sort of roman history and uh-huh. i loved roman history when i was growing up um we were really into celtic sort of history and things like that and obviously here was a strong woman she was seen as a bit of a goddess she rode around on chariots with big swords coming out of the uh, uh wheels and i always imagined you know all the little roman ankles and the little skirts <laughs> getting sliced up by the swords spinning really quickly so it was like you know, yeah. it was quite quite a a sort of uh, iconic, a, yeah, quite a strong. Well, but also image. an like, iconic figure in my uh-huh. imagination because uh-huh. because uh, you know the Romans. I mean, I loved Asterix and stuff. So beating up Romans <laughs> was a kind of like it was something that you did in popular culture. But but she was seen as much. I, I you know she was always portrayed as this kind of red haired, wild eyed kind of angry woman, you know, mm-hmm, yeah. who'd been scorned by the Romans and she was going to burn them all to the ground, to the ground. And I mean, I know that, you know, there's disagreement over what actually happened, but, you know, that's the kind of... Well, you know, you you have hit the nail on quite a few heads. She, a lot of what you say is actually true and there are actual written records um, to, to back up much of what you have just said there. Um The Queen was introduced to English readers in 1534 by Polydore Virgil when he was asked by Henry VIII to write a history of England. He gives the name as Boadicea. 
Right, so that's where that came yeah, from. Yeah, it, it went on for, you know, she was known as Bodhisattva for a long time. Uh, Bodhisattva, spelt a little differently, was also the title of an English tragedy in 1697. Uh, and it was one of several phonetic spellings adapted by 17th century playwrights, including Ben Jonson and John Fletcher. So I think there was quite a lot of um, mixing up But of, hang on, of the were names. the Elizabethans not desperate to be like linked to all British heroes in the past and stuff? So he probably, if it was Henry VIII, he probably wanted to be like, you know... They probably drew a direct line of his lineage all the way back to her, was it? Well, you can imagine Henry VIII would, would probably quite like Boudicca. You could imagine uh, that he would he, like to be thought of as a male version yes, of I know, Boudicca. But he because wasn't known for his empowering of women. Though, no, he wasn't, but, you know, he liked the ladies and I think he was probably very impressed. I reckon uh, if she'd been around Boudicca. when Henry VIII was around, it would have been half with her head. I don't think he would have chopped off Boudicca's really? head, no. No, she would have sliced his ankle. <laughs> Anyway, although Bodicea is a lovely version of the name, I like it, the Iceni Queen probably should be called Boudicca after Tacitus. It's a variation of victory in Celtic and it's the equivalent of the modern Victoria. So wait a minute, if, it, if it's Celtic then, where is she from? She's from Britain. No, but where in Britain is she from? Because obviously the Celts weren't everywhere. Yes, well, we'll get to that later okay. on in the podcast. But it's a very, it's a good question. And, you know, obviously migration plays a big part in all of Britain's history. So that is also part of Boudicca's history. Mm-hmm. But we'll come to that later on in the podcast. Anyway, the Queen has a place of her own in amongst the many, many folk heroes and heroines of the British Isles. And most of what we know about her comes from two Roman historians of her era who I've, I've mentioned already. I'm sorry about my Latin, by the way. Publius Cornelius Tacitus. That probably means something rude, you realise. Well, <laughs> I don't know. As I say, I never studied Latin at school. Did you study Latin? Actually, I did. Did you? I did two classes. <laughs> two classes, I think, ever. And the only reason was because I got out of maths. We, we were offered Latin at my school. When, it came ti- when the yeah. time came to choose our subjects, yeah. uh, we were offered Latin. And a lot of, ch- a lot of kids in my class, they, they did take Latin mm-hmm. because it was seen as a prestige subject. Yeah, exactly. And they wanted to say yeah, they took Latin. We had a very well, posh uh, Latin teacher, uh, Mr Lauder. And he was a lovely man, but I felt sorry for him because everyone there was there to skive maths. Uh... And, and because I'd obviously been interested in Monty Python and everything, <laughs> my perception of Latin was purely comic and so I could, just couldn't stop that giggling. That poor teacher. I know. I that feel, poor teacher. I feel, I feel sorry for many of my teachers. That poor classicist. So if you're listening, uh, yeah, I apologise. Well. Anyway. And Cassius Dio was the other one you mentioned. Cassius Dio, who we'll be hearing from throughout this podcast. Oh, that's amazing. How did you manage to get <laughs> recordings of him? You know what I mean. <laughs> So it wasn't until the 16th century that ancient manuscripts of Tacitus were found in a library and published in Italy. And by the time another great Greek queen was on the throne of England, Elizabeth I, the full effect of Boudicca on the popular imagination was in full flow. Stories of Boudicca appear now and then in the accounts of 17th and 18th century historians. And she was the subject of the poem Boudicca, an ode by William Cowper. And this poem stayed tremendously popular for a long time. It was like number one in the charts. I suppose it was quite a romantic story and they did love a romantic battle. Oh, they sucked it up. They took it in like soup. 
I mean, she'll be popular today as well. They'll love that story, all the Brexiters and that. Well, you know, she's taking back control, <laughs> isn't she? <laughs> she did take back control, yeah. but what happened? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that later Spoilers. on, I think. Let's leave that till later. Okay. So it was under yet another great queen, Victoria, that interest once again revived. This was a time when Britain, oh, here we go, having talked about Brexit here. This was a time when Britain was expanding its empire and its wealth. And there was a lot of backward looking to glories of the past, which uh, I think is quite a British thing to do. It's a British habit. Mm -hmm. um, Patriotic nostalgia. Yeah, it's not really something that I really approve of. But it, I, I think it's something well, we in the British in psyche. As well. We you do know, do it in yes, but Bonnie Prince Charlie, you know, we do. And um, what can I say? I think what other, can I say? I think they do it in other countries as well. I have to be said. You okay. know, I mean, uh, you know, we any country that one time bossed itself around the world and stuff does, you know, go back yeah. to that with misty eyes. Do you think? For, yeah, forgetting the fact. Do you think that, it's you know, normal? Forgetting that many children were, you know, probably dying in infancy and stuff like that. They they sort of gloss over all those horrible... Wasn't the past brilliant? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't that cholera epidemic just fantastic? I bet. Think about Britain. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, anyway. One of Britain's leading sculptors at this time, Victorian era, Thomas Thornyfield, was commissioned to create a statue of Boudicca. And his vision was that of Queen Boudicca in a bulky armoured war chariot with big curved scythes on the wheels. Oh, yeah. Nothing like what her chariot would have been, by so the way. So do you think that she did have a chariot? She did definitely, definitely have a chariot, but it did not have scythes on the wheels oh. and it was not made of metal. See, are we, do we know that just through the Roman historians, though? Because I'll tell you why... We, we know this from eyewitness accounts. Oh, because the thing that, that I always wondered is, you know how um, the Romans would put everyone in chariots? Because when they went back to Rome and they had the um, the big chariot race and they would do reenactments of the Rome's greatest yeah, this victories. Is, this is Hollywood's version. No, no, but they would, they would in Rome, they yeah. actually did do reenactments of like great battles where the Roman Romans had won. They would always have their opponents in chariots. And I always wondered whether... Um, you know, that that was where the chariot kind of thing came from? Interestingly, I think by the time that the Romans arrived in Britain, I I remember reading this, and I haven't written it down, but Mm -hmm. it's still in my memory. I think at that stage, chariots in Rome had actually gone out of fashion. All right. By the time they arrived in Britain. I bet they'd reached the the sticks. (laughs) But the chariots in Britain were nothing like um, the Roman chariots. So where were we? Um, Yes, the chariots. Nothing like what her chariot would have been and pulled by a pair of, of big rearing stallions again. Nothing mm-hmm. like the small shaggy horses, lovely yeah. strong horses, that would have pulled her chariot. British horses. <laughs> British horses. Shetland ponies. No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> and with two girls, probably her daughters, kneeling behind her. The work was so ambitious and grand that the sculptor died before it was finished, leaving only the plaster casts. And it wasn't until 1902 that it was finished and a site was found for the statue. 
Boudicca stands today, the statue I should say, by the crossing onto Westminster Bridge from Parliament Square and the Houses of Parliament. Many thousands of tourists pass by this sculpture every day, as well as the large numbers of commuters crossing the bridge and emerging from Westminster Underground Station. It is a really beautiful statue, despite being historically inaccurate, but most of them are Victorian statues and they had a very specific view of the world. Um, But, you know, they are gorgeous, Mm -hmm. all these statues. So why are we discussing Boudicca? Yeah, why are we discussing well, Boudicca? Well, as already mentioned, Boudicca was queen of the Iceni. Ah, oh, that's why. She was married <laughs> to King Prasutagus of the Iceni. Oh, right. Prasutagus sounds pretty Roman as a name, doesn't no, it? No, it's... Well, it's probably a Roman Roman. Maybe, maybe that was the... the yes, yeah. that's a really good point. That did happen a lot. Anyway, after a significant series of events, she eventually led an uprising against occupying Roman forces, yes. destroying first the capital city of Colchester, yes. then the Ninth Legion Espana, who came to save it. Wait, the Ninth Legion? They went missing in Scotland, well, did they Well, I think you're getting mixed up with another legion. That's the Eagle of... Yeah, the Ninth Legion. But the thing is, the legion's so big that it was probably... You know, they were based in, in Britain and then they went, they disappeared in Scotland. Eventually. Well, I know there is a story about a, a legion that disappeared, but I'm not yeah, sure if it's ninth. this one. Is it? Well, it was definitely the Ninth yeah. Legion, Hispania, yeah. who came to save Colchester, uh, followed by two other major Roman British cities. They also were destroyed. But this didn't just happen out of thin air. Uh, to set the scene a little, let's talk about Rome's invasion of Britain. Julius Caesar first landed in Britain from Gaul, which is now France, in 55 BC, which is 55 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Correct. This is over 100 years before Boudicca's rebellion. It was a bit late in the campaigning season and there are doubts that his intention was total conquest, but whatever. He sent a Gaulish chieftain named Commius across the channel to enlist support amongst the British tribes and Caesar assembled 80 ships to carry two legions containing about 12,000 men. The cavalry and their horses were to sail separately later on. After waiting for a good wind, the Roman ships left Gaul on August the 26th and eventually came in sight of the White Cliffs of Dover. The cliffs were bristling with menacing British warriors horsemen and war chariots. It's probably worth saying that this is way before Boudicca though, isn't it? This is a hundred years, at least a hundred years before Boudicca. This is the first invasion. Yeah. Because there are two invasions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's worth saying that because... I uh, did say it earlier. All right, okay. (laughs) Pay attention. (laughs) It was obviously no place to land, so Caesar waited for hours offshore for the cavalry who he thought were following and they didn't arrive they'd been blown off course did everyone ever find them well we'll get to that in a minute (laughs) we will get to that in a minute i mean that time when we were following (laughs) remember that time we were following uh, caesar over to britain (laughs) in the afternoon the roman fleet sailed northeast without them and came in sight of the long stretch of flat shore to the north The Britons moved along on land to keep pace, keeping an eye on the Romans all the while. The Roman ships drew in and anchored offshore, and the legionaries were faced with the prospect of waiting to land, 
burdened with weapons and gear, while the Britons threw javelins at them and galloped threateningly to and fro on the beach. The soldiers hung back. They were intimidated. And it wasn't until the eagle bearer of the tenth jumped into the sea and shouted to his comrades to follow him and defend the standard that they reluctantly got in, struggling through the waves in their heavy armour to the beach. After savage fighting, the legionaries managed to form up, charge the Britons and drive them off in flight. But... They had no cavalry. Cavalry? Cavalry. They probably did have have a cavalry. (laughs) So they couldn't (laughs) catch them. The Britons sent emissaries to Caesar to sue for peace, along with a shame-faced Commius. Remember him, the Gaul? Uh Caesar took hostages from them, and after four days, the cavalry transports at last appeared. Hooray! But... Seamen. Were blown away mm-hmm. by a sudden fierce storm and forced back to Gaul. I right. I bet you they just were like, I'm not going up those. No, cliffs. British weather. The gale coincided with an exceptionally high tide, and many of Caesar's ships dragged their anchors and were wrecked on the beach. The Britons saw this and started to muster their forces again. The Romans began repairing their ships, but now they were short of food. Parties ventured into the countryside to gather supplies, but were ambushed by British chariots and horsemen. Fortunately for the Romans, the attack raised such a cloud of dust that Caesar saw it from the camp and hurried up with reinforcements. After several days of incessant rain, Caesar managed to bring the British to a pitched battle. The British were defeated with heavy casualties, but again could not be effectively pursued as no cavalry. Caesar had had enough. He had a flounce. He just had had enough. He had epilepsy, you know. He did. He embarked his men on the ships and sailed back to Gaul. But he came back again the following year. God loves a trier. He does. (laughs) This time he was far more successful and he formed a treaty with a local British king. The result being that five other tribes, and I'm sorry, I I have no idea if I'm pronouncing these right, the Senimagni, the Segosantai, the Anselites, the Brucai and the Kassai surrendered to Caesar. In the eyes of Rome, Britain had been conquered and all that remained was it to be taken over and made into a Roman province. But at that time in Gaul, there was a great revolt and Caesar just lost interest in Britain. He left and he never came back. Subsequent civil wars caused the Romans to sort of forget about Britain for the next hundred years. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you're on the edge of, you know, the furthest removed from the seat of power, you know, and Britain was always like that. And people think that Scotland, you know, was, we were so hard that we never got um, conquered conquered by by the Romans. Romans. But I mean, it was very much political, you know, we were just miles away from everywhere. We're right on the edge, right on the yeah. edge of Europe, yeah. you know, and and politics changes things, changes people's priorities and things like that. Well, things happen, um, and a little island in the middle of a very cold sea. I mean, the weather in itself uh-huh. <laughs> would have put anyone off, really. I mean, coming from lovely, warm Italy to cold, freezing Britain. I mean, that's just that's that's a big. But I like, you know, I think in Scotland we like to think that we are special. Yes, and, I know. And, and I no. think, and I think that it's as much to do with the fact that we were just miles away, <laughs> yes. and really hilly, and it's like it's nothing you know, to do with our prowess as fighters. Or, you or, know, it's like, although, although we were very good guerrilla fighters, there was I don't think of... they were guerrillas. I think they were picts. Um, 
I think but that was before could, Roman times. We could have, we could have done no no the pics we could have done with um, that that body here of a girl <laughs> okay. um, just for the cold you know <laughs> anyway what has all this got to do with Boudicca Donna because well, you know this is like you're talking about I'm before set- she was even a twinkle in her mummy's e I'm setting the scene Tom right, okay. I'm setting the scene right. and fast I'm, I think we'll appreciate it later yeah yeah so let's fast forward to 43 AD. The Great Age of Conquest had ended a few decades before. Three legions had been destroyed in the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest by rebellious German tribesmen in 9 AD. Now, I don't I could be wrong, but do you remember that that scene in the mm. Ridley Scott film Gladiator yeah. right at the start? Yeah. Uh where there's a big battle in the in forest, the forest yeah. with 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 the Goths, with the yeah. Germans. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that's? Do you no. think that might be related to no, this? No, do you think that's the same thing? No, I, one. I think you're giving uh, Ridley Scott far too much credit for being historically accurate. It just sounds but, really familiar but, but to, also, that, to those also, scenes. But also, that was a great victory in Gladiator. Ah, uh, yes, of course. And he was yes. like, "How good am I, a commander? Yes. I'm okay. hard as nails okay. and all that." And well, it's like, just but my wife. No, just you know. ignore uh, but, but everything I, think, I just said. I think there, he might well have based it on that, though, okay. because they did run into difficulties in the woods, and yeah. obviously, eventually. So maybe he based know, it on on this historical yeah, fact, and or the campaigns. Just gave I it, think they had loads of campaigns yeah. up there, though. Okay. He maybe yeah okay I just wondered it sounded really familiar mm-hmm. so the emperor Augustus concluded that the empire was overextended and he called a halt to new wars of conquest the mad emperor Caligula had been assassinated in 41 AD and an obscure member of the imperial family Claudius had been <laughs> elevated to the throne the new emperor faced opposition from the senate and uh, Claudius needed a quick political fix to secure his throne. What better than a glorious military victory in Britain? Where? Britain. Remember Britain, that I say. Remember, that remember you place? forgot about it? Yeah. Well, I tell you. The sticks. For this invasion, an army of 40,000 professional soldiers were landed in Britain under the command of Aulus Plautius. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but there we go. Archaeologists debate where they landed. Uh-huh. Could have been Richborough in Kent, Chichester in Sussex, or maybe both. Somewhere, perhaps on the River Medway, they fought a great battle and they crushed the Catuvaloni, or Catuvaloni, I'm no. not sure, the tribe that dominated the southeast. Okay. Then, in the presence of Claudius himself, they stormed the enemy capital at Camulodunum, which is Colchester, right. which was where the Trinovantes tribe resided. So it's quite uh, focused in the southeast then? Well, it seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. But resistance continued elsewhere. Pushing into the southwest of Britain... Mm-hmm. The Romans fought a war of sieges to reduce the great Iron Age hill forts of the Western tribes. 
Driving through and beyond the Midlands, they encountered even stronger opposition as they approached Wales. Uh-huh. They're hard in Wales. Well, they Brexit voting Wales. They want none <laughs> oh of no, it. back to Brexit. Yeah, but it's true though. They've well, got a great tradition of. Well, they were hard. They were Europe, hard as European. nails. These these Welsh tribes, where the fugitive Catavolonian prince Caraticus rallied the Welsh tribes on a new anti-Roman front. Anyway, let's fast forward a little again, um, because otherwise we'll be here for hours, to around 54 AD. Many Britons were still not prepared to accept the Roman way of life, and they bitterly resented the bureaucrats who collected taxes in their typically callous way. But the Romans did love to, you know, get people on board with their culture, you know. Like oh, they, they did? They, they, they had the bath. Oh, yes! They had a bath and everything, and, oh. you know, they would adopt all of the stuff that was already there and make it their own. And what is not love... to love about exactly. baths? And and it's not just put baths. Being clean and, yeah. and, and wine. They had, and... Their villas were totally self-sufficient. I remember going to see a place... Actually, not far from where you're talking about, you know, in the, it just just north of Wales, and I saw um, a Roman villa, and they had effectively completely self-sufficient. They had a central bit where they grew their uh, fruit and vegetables, which almost was like a greenhouse kind of thing. They had hot water that not only provided their baths but also heated the entire place. Um, in Britain. In Britain, and so what you would get is actually people would be like. Right, either I live in my absolutely freezing hill In my floor. hovel, yeah, exactly. in my mud-built mud hovel. Or I don't a toga and I, like, you uh, know, move with the times. And in well, a way, you can understand that, you know. Well, lots lots of Britons did get on board, mm-hmm. um, but lots of Britons didn't. And, as I say, they resented the ruins. And they were very much the... The Brexiteers. They were the, the diehards. Day, the day. Oh, yeah. let's stop talking about Brexit, please. <laughs> it seems so relevant, though. <laughs> uh, well, no, I think it's different. I do think it's a different situation. So the colonist Romans at the capital city of Colchester were not behaving very well, and many of them were treating natives, uh, remember the Trinavantes tribe, with utter contempt, the mm-hmm. assumption being that everything in Britain was theirs for the taking. For the Britons... The conquest had been and was still an ongoing traumatic experience. Those who had been hostile were dead or enslaved or, this would be me, seething with resentment. Mm. Those who had welcomed Rome and were donning togas and adopting the lifestyle were facing the realities of power and an often corrupt monetary system. So even those who were into the Romans, they had their problems too. I have to say, if it had been me, I would have been like, no, you've brought theatre, you've brought central heating, you I mean, and that's fine. (laughs) You know, I I get it. I, I might have welcomed them as well, but... On top of all of this, when the Emperor Claudius died in 54 AD, a huge, ornate temple was built there in his honour. It was paid for, you guessed it, Tom, Mm -hmm. by the long-suffering Britons. The tribes. Who were obliged to make yearly contributions towards it. And as it took about six or seven years to build, that was a lot of money. But beyond the frontier... On what is now the Welsh borders, there were still those renegade Britons who refused to submit to the Romans, Mm. engaging in guerrilla warfare. And while they were out there, the possibility of release from Roman tyranny must have flickered in many a heart. Right. You know, I was talking about um, culture. Hmm. One thing we've not um, mentioned so far is religion, because obviously if 
if they were trying to subsume these tribes into their own culture, then religion would have a big part of it. And you talked about this massive temple. Yes. So what, what were the tribes coming over to Jupiter or was it, you know, was it Christianity by then? I can't remember, but I don't think it was Christian yet. Um, well, no, it w- <laughs> I don't think it was Christian. It was the Mithraic religion. But mm. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I want to talk about the Druids. Well, that's, yeah, Druids. This, this brings us nicely into uh, the Druids. This is something that the Druids, whose way of life was at risk from the Romans, possibly used to exert their political and mystical powers to mm-hmm. fan the flames of discontent and use anti-Roman feeling to their own advantage. That's what I meant. That's kind of what yeah, I meant. Yeah, okay. So, we'll come back to the Druids, but we just have to move on a little bit um, to get the story moving. Now let's move our attention back to Boudicca and the Iceni Okay, tribe. so tell me, what kind of people were the Iceni then? Because Well, know. I'll tell you. The Iceni tribe were of Celtic descent, and they occupied much of East Anglia, encompassing what is now Norfolk and North Suffolk, an area that even today can give an impression of rural seclusion. Compared to some of the other tribes, much less is known of them. Do you know what? That makes me sort of doubt the the um, the fact that they had chariots because Norfolk is famously boggy, <laughs> you know? And getting a chariot through that with a tiny horse would not be easy, you know what I mean? Well, like, they, they did have chariots. I don't want to fight you, but they did have chariots. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll slice your ankles. Well, they did have chariots, just, but the chariots... The, I know you are. The chariots weren't heavy chariots. They were made of wicker. I talk about that later, yeah. but I'll tell you that now, okay. just, just to shut you up. <laughs> Their ancestors would have arrived in Britain from across the North Sea, from what is now Belgium and Holland. Mm-hmm. The date of this migration was round about 500 BC. From archaeological finds, including, it must be said, lots of war relics like shields and enameled uh, scabbards, it was clear that the Iceni were a wealthy people and that their leaders were mostly interested in horses. Coins of the Iceni tribe displayed their own motif, an animal somewhere between a boar and a horse, and in the end the horse became the predominant motif, which again indicates what the main interests of the Iceni were. Were they breeding boars and horses? That I don't think they were. No. <laughs> I, re- I don't that think That sounds yeah. very Victorian. Uh, no. <laughs> I think we can safely say that they weren't doing that. Unless they were. Oh my god. <laughs> That's another podcast altogether. Other archaeological finds suggest a style of living that could be definitely termed gracious, exquisitely made domestic artefacts like brooches and mirrors. It is, however, the massive golden torques that the wealth and aristocracy of the Iceni is best portrayed. And if you've ever seen one of these torques, and I have, I saw one in a museum. Even if you've seen one, on television, you'll get an idea of just how magnificent they are. Have, have you? Uh, well, seen I know anything, there's the big, there's the massive oh, they're cores. Beautiful, and stuff. But, you they're beautiful. They're so gorgeous. But you know, it's like it's one of those things. I think wherever they find a really interesting archaeological find in in Britain, they they sort of go, ah, look, we've got this beautiful thing, and everyone knows really interested. The journalists, you know, they don't pick up on the press <laughs> release, and then they're like, 
it could have been Boudicca's. And everyone's like, yeah! yeah! And I think that there's a bit of that goes on, you know? Well, I, th- I think it was... Everyone loves a yeah. bit of Boudicca, so. Yeah. I don't think it was, uh, you know, confined to the Iceni. No, no. But it definitely was part of their culture. There was there was a lot of those torques about. And, oh, they must have been so heavy. And I just, I can't imagine trying to fight in battle with one of those weighing me down. But they probably didn't fight oh, they probably in the whipped torques, them out for, they? Um, they probably would have put them somewhere safe they would probably whipped them out for special occasions yeah that, you know it's I, like I don't think they would have fought two hours into the wedding they're like oh <laughs> I'll tell you what my torque is pure chafing I'm just gonna go and get changed for the disco yeah, they, <laughs> for the disco I see any discos I see any discos they would have been awesome oh yeah <laughs> anyway Celtic women actually had a much purer life than those of their Roman counterparts. Roman society was essentially a man's world and women were completely excluded from the Mithraic religion which was spreading via the Roman armies across the empire. Not so in Celtic society, Tom. In fact, there is every reason to believe that the priests of the Celts, the Druids, remember the Druids, Mm -hmm. included women... As well as men, and there's plenty Yay. of evidence. There's plenty of evidence that um, the inheritance um, in some in some tribes, uh, the inheritance of power went through the women. Went through the women, yeah. Well, um, that's quite. Uh, they do that in the Jewish uh, cult, the religion. It's all through the women, mm-hmm. um, and in a way, it's the most. Oh, why don't all cultures do that? Why do we live in such a patriarchal society? Well, I mean, that, that's a you big... know, I mean, a lot of it's to do with oh, who was the father, but in the case of 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 a matriarchal society, yeah. you know for sure who the mother is. You know, you're not going to be worrying about. Who, but all of yeah. the Teutonic um, religions did have a sort of paternal uh, head. Hmm. You know, whether it's Zeus or. Um, yeah. Odin, you know. But they also and, had a lot of female but they did, yeah. deities. But, but if you look at the way that the Romans took the Greek gods and changed them, they became a lot more patriarchal at that point. Mm. And if you look at um, what the Roman Empire became in its modern guise, the Catholic Church, then that's headed by a big father, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. So still, you know, you can actually see a yeah, pattern you can. of the you patriarchy. Can. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. So this society, uh, the Iceni, ruled over by horse-mad and war-mad chieftains, has interestingly been compared to that of other ancient chivalric orders like the samurai of Japan or even the warriors of Homer, which I found quite interesting and, and, and noteworthy. Just a bit about the Druids, because they do have a part to play in our story. The Druids were drawn from tribal aristocracy and were supposed by the Romans to be an important nationalist focus for the natives of Britain. Uh-huh. Uh, subsequently, the Druids were suppressed, very suppressed by the Romans, either for their barbarous practices, which was the official reason given by the Romans, uh-huh. or for their political activities. Uh, What were those barbarous practices? Well, just your everyday ritual magic and conversing with the gods through animal sacrifice. Which the Romans did as well. Yes. And although it would have died, it probably died out in the first century AD, a bit of human sacrifice as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But by the time of our story, the Druids on the Isle of Mona in particular 
were harbouring British rebels at their sanctuary and giving a form of political refuge from the Romans. So, you know, that's why the Romans didn't like them. And I think a lot of people think about Druids um, as in Merlin from the Arthurian legends. Oh, well, which is actually, it's so enticing. But that's a romantic yes. view of yes. what Druids would have been like. I mean, that's not necessarily what they would have been. No. We, we don't really know what they were like, and we don't know whether how much of their sort of uh, rituals and things have been kind of adopted Well, by, nothing was written down. Yeah, exactly. So uh, and we know that they were apart, political, apart, don't we? Apart from the propaganda, yeah, probably. Exactly. But yeah, it's hugely politicised, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So, oh, I would love to know a bit more about the Druids. Mm-hmm. I, they're so... So if anyone listening knows more about the Druids or has had an out-of-body experience <laughs> and talked to them, then get in touch with us and well, uh, we would love to hear I, I your stories. I would dearly like to know a bit more about the Druids. Ever since I watched Excalibur. Ah. So the Iceni, like many other tribes, had grudgingly made a treaty with the Romans and had become what was known as a client kingdom. Mm-hmm. And this basically means that the new overlords, the Romans, would allow the people to keep most of their independence as long as they stayed friendly and cooperative and didn't try any funny business like killing Romans and, and being rebels. <laughs> you know how it is. It's the same everywhere. So at the time of our story, the ruler of this Iceni client kingdom was one King Prasutagus. And somewhere between 49 AD and 60 AD, he went on to marry a woman of royal birth called... Boudicca. Boudicca, who was probably from either the Iceni or the Trinovanti tribe. Remember the Trinovantes? They, They keep popping up. So here we have a physical description of Boudicca by Cassius Dio. In stature she was very tall, in appearance most terrifying, in the glance of her eye most fierce, and her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips. Around her neck was a large golden necklace, and she wore a tunic of diverse colours over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. This was her invariable attire. That's funny to hear that because um, obviously you would say that if you if she was your opponent, that she was tall and terrifying and all the rest of it, you know? Do you think so? If, if you were the opponent, would you not try and make her seem less... No, not if she'd. I mean, if, I, if, if she was my if she was my opponent and I was trying to spread a bit of propaganda, I might say she was a bit, you know, mousy and you know, not, not that account, special. But were they not accounts written after her death, though? Oh yeah, loads. So, so I think I think they would have tried to big her up because Do you? to save face <gasps> because she'd burned yes. one of their cities. Yes, and everything. good point. Very good point. Um, Very, I, I think you yeah. know, but the, the stuff about the hair is quite interesting. Isn't well, it? So, you know, Boudicca's always shown with red hair and mm. I found this description Celtic. yeah I found the description of her tawny hair colour just a bit confusing not confusing I don't know disappointing maybe but maybe tawny was red you know I think of tawny as being a mixture of blonde and brown what, dirty Mi- blonde no no like a golden sort of I don't know a sort of ombre <laughs> you know <laughs> you can't imagine a, Cassius Dio it's a, a sort of know, brownish blonde colour but uh, You've got to remember, he wasn't the Daily Mail. He wasn't. It was Cassius d- Dio. Dirty was... blonde in killing Romans shock. Well, maybe you know? his version of red was. Uh, maybe he used the description as of, of Tony 
as as red. I don't know. I, uh, but to me, Tony is blonde brown yeah. blondie brown i don't know what i think of for tawny it could be strawberry blonde. like lion like a lion's mane yeah you know brownie yeah. blonde anyway that's that's but not you've that's got important remember, you've got to remember though that cassia's deal was right in propaganda like you say um but it was also propaganda for the people who lived after she yeah. died so, yeah of course you know so yes uh, yes well anyway here here schmear also, the description of her having a harsh voice was no doubt an embellishment. Uh, what we here would call a slagging on the part of Cassius Dio. I mean, how would he know what her voice sounded like? Because he took most of his information from Tacitus, who lived a little bit before him. Mm. And as far as I you know, can find out, Tacitus never mentioned what Boudicca's voice was like. But, but it's not that important. But it's you, all yes, pretty shallow stuff. Yeah, but what's interesting about it is you only need to look at Twitter today to find the way that women's voices are described. Mm. It's always shrieking or complaining shrill. or shrill. Mm, yes. or, or, you know, and, and it's the, the, the verbs that are used yes. to describe the way that women speak. And that is not gone away. I mean, no. that's absolutely alive You're and absolutely well. Right, you're absolutely right. Um, Margaret Thatcher's voice Mm -hmm. was famously described as like a fishwife's uh, by some detractors. But I mean, have you ever met a fishwife who talks like that? (laughs) Well, I don't think so. I think uh, Margaret Thatcher had a lot of voice coaching throughout her political career, so maybe at the start she sounded like a fishwife. I don't know. I don't. That's another. It's another story. Like a grocer's daughter. Yes. So. Boudicca and Priesta Tagus, they mm. had two daughters yes. whose names were not recorded, uh, but for some reason in my notes I have either Camorra and Tascal or possibly Voda and Vodicea. I don't know where I read that, mm-hmm. but it's written down. Yeah, I don't know. And I mean... I'm going to put it in there just for yeah. the romance of it. <laughs> anyway, in 60 or 61 AD, King Prasutagus died. Yeah. He had made a will, leaving half of his wealth to the emperor of that time, Nero. Yes, that one, the one who fiddled while Rome burned. The other half he left to his two daughters as he wanted to preserve his family line and preserve independence. His death left Boudicca to rule as client queen. But according to Roman law, which this is, yeah, this this got, this sort of, piqued my interest. Surely Prasutagus and Boudicca would have been aware of Roman law. Yeah, and I think they would have been coexisting with the Romans. Exactly. Anyway, they uh, they must have known, you know, what uh, what would happen. I, I don't know. Maybe they were just being awkward. Um, but according to Roman law, women could not inherit and property could not be passed through the female line. And they line. would have known that as well. Surely. They must have known yeah, that. Yeah. The Romans' behaviour following King Prasutagus's death was, oh, it was appalling. Yeah. Iceni lands were confiscated. Nobles were treated as slaves. Mm-hmm. The procurator, basically an administrator responsible for collecting taxes, mm-hmm. who was called Catus Decianus, mm-hmm. who, Decianus. it should be mm-hmm. said, was noted for his greed, was taking all these lands, buildings and goods by force including the half that was supposed to belong to Boudicca's daughters. Uh, So, was Boudicca about to take this lying down like a doormat? No. Was she queen of the Iceni? Yes. There was no way 
she was going to accept this behaviour. So, she protested, as any queen would. And for this absolute cheek for daring to protest against this behaviour, Decianus ordered her to be stripped and scourged, which means flogged. And for her daughters, who incidentally would have been about 12 years old at this time, to be beaten and raped in front of her as the spoils of war. I think it's fairly safe to say that Decianus was not a skilled politician. Oh, you know, I mean, if you're gonna, pig. no, but if you're gonna actually like, this is not gonna make them go away. You know, it's well. It, he probably wasn't expecting what happened next. I mean, right? Rape is is a common it's, sort of it's, use. Of, it's a political. It's a political tool, I isn't think, it? You know, it or would was. have been in those days. Yeah. This raping was by no means a mindless act of violence. Uh, The rape of a royal female was a ritual act to signify the suppression and subordination of a people. And psychologically, it was very powerful. I just just can't imagine. It's like our previous conversation about the rise of the patriarchy. You know, it's writ large in that Oh, it's just just such a a horrible sort of display of power. Just... Just awful. Anyway, let's remember there is already a huge deal of resentment towards the Romans, even before this horrible yeah. treatment of the Druids. Yeah, oh yeah, the smouldering, mm-hmm. you know, the resentment, even before the horrible treatment of Boudicca and her daughters. And this utter outrage was petrol poured onto an already smouldering fire. The land appropriation, the brutal behaviour of the Roman colonists towards the natives, the money and loans transactions, which I don't think I mentioned, but basically it was a monetary setup men not used to capitalist system didn't understand. And let's not forget the building of the very fancy, very expensive temple in honour of Claudius that the Britons had to pay for. The list of grievances was pretty long and all this time the Druids are ramping up the propaganda and the resentment among many Britons is growing red hot. According to Tacitus, the city of Camelodunum, Colchester, Mm -hmm. gave out its own warning of the terrible events that lay ahead. The portents were apparently many and various The Statue of Victory fell down with its back turned as if it was fleeing an enemy. A phantom settlement in ruins was glimpsed at the head of the River Thames. Outlandish shouts were heard in the Senate House and screams in the local theatre were heard. And most troubling of all, the sea turned a blood-red colour and shapes like human corpses were seen at the edge of the shore. They actually found more of that temple recently in the I last heard month. about that um, yes they, they, it's got the biggest um I want to say shopping arcade but it would have been called something else but it was like an open shopping area that surrounded yep. that temple it would have been a huge um square it was massive yeah and and you know it done in the finest Roman yeah. kind of uh, craftsmanship. Very and all the rest expensive of it. To build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I re- I think I saw that. Yeah, I, th- it, I saw that in in oh I can't remember it was online. But anyway. I mean, it was a symbol of th- big infrastructure projects like that mm. are, are really a way of showing power, aren't they? And showing oh, kind of um, absolutely, you know, that you're on top of things. Uh, so I think that you know, given that the druids are stoking it up. Yeah, and what the horrific ordeal that she's been through. Oh, I Plus, just, yeah, they built imagine. a massive temple. It's like the the Romans at this point 
they've they've created this scenario. Well, you would think I they would, would know thought. that from and from th- past they have to know experience. That, yeah, they would have to know that she, or at least people who are associated with her, were going to want to kick back against this. You know, I mean, you know, c- commerce and culture was how was some of the main ways that they could yeah, actually... Yeah, but they were such a people. powerful force. And, and uh, can you just imagine this powerful force mm-hmm. invading where you lived? But, and it's easier just to get on board. Yeah, yeah, you know? but they were so organised. That's the thing, is all their conflicts, a lot, many of their conflicts were organised. They set the agenda. Yeah. They decided well, they when were they were... very organised, yes. Mean. But this doesn't seem organised because they're not going, we're going to wage war with the Iceni. What they're doing is, I will just take all their well, stuff, no, 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 we'll build because, a massive um, monument. And because we'll just, remember and we'll I said them, that Boudicca and Prasitagas, they must have known what the law was. Yeah. So... Uh, that confuses me but that's kind of what I mean is that you know they knew what the law was and there was probably a chance that uh, at that point they might have if if, uh, I can't remember his name but no the um the tax collector guy Decianus Decianus yeah if he if he if he'd played it differently, it might not have happened. Well, you know, he, could have, he sounds like raping, a total Yeah, but pig. instead of raping the daughters and stuff, he, he could have said, right, we're going to give you this, um, you know, you, you can still uh, be called the queen. You can still be called all this. We can still give you all the luxuries of life yeah, and everything. I, but I do think that r- the Romans were just used to people doing what they told them to do because they were so powerful. Yeah, but I just think And that, they, they, they were just used to it. It was the norm that people would just do as they told But that's kind of what I mean is I think that they probably usually had mm. better, more skilled um, politicians yeah. in charge. That was someone who's a, just an idiot. It's like, well, he wasn't really a politician. He was a, an administrator. Exactly, yeah, he yeah. wasn't. He, was a a, he didn't have political <laughs> skills. He was a, a, a tax collector. Mm-hmm. He was a greedy so and so. But you would you would want revenge, wouldn't you? Well, oh, it does not take a huge leap of imagination to know that Boudicca. Oh, she wants revenge. I. As as a parent of a daughter, I would want revenge. I would want to kill. And she gets together with other raging Iceni leader, leaders, as well as the leaders of their pals, the Trinovantes. Mm-hmm. And they plan a rebellion. They're so angry. The first place they decide to attack, not surprisingly, is Camelodunum, remember? Mm-hmm. Colchester, where the hated temple resides. It also happens to be the home of many retired military personnel, Roman military personnel. And it wasn't well defended. As soon as it dawned on the Roman veterans that an attack was imminent, they looked around for help and were sent only 200 men from London. This was sheer complacency on the part of London because they genuinely thought that 200 soldiers would be oh, more than enough to put down those pesky Britons. The veterans panicked. They, they didn't draw up what forces they did have behind any defences and they didn't send the women, children and elderly to places of safety. Uh-oh. Any plans they did try to draw up in what must have been quite terrifying uh, hours mm-hmm. were questioned by secret this this made me laugh um it's so modern they were questioned by secret supporters of the britons planted in the colony this is true 
And this suggests a very well-planned and executed tactic on the part of the Britons. Mm-hmm. I just found that so... That, that made me laugh. I, I just found that quite funny. Anyway, the attack did come and, oh, it was devastating. The Britons swept all before them and quickly overran the settlement in the first onslaught. Men, women and children were slaughtered without mercy. The Britons took no prisoners. The interesting thing about this is that they'd never actually found the amount of remains of of people to, to back that up. So the stories of of the of um, Boudicca's huge like killing sprees, uh, they've not found that many uh, corpses like in a big grave. Or I mean, they still could find it because not yeah. everywhere has been dug up. Yeah. But it's just an interesting question mark over this uh, over the the accounts because all the accounts, as you've said, say that they were absolutely without mercy yeah. and they slaughtered everyone in front of them. I think but they were. But they've never found those uh, well, bodies. Well, the there are the... Uh, Tacitus especially, he gets his information, I think, from a family member who was actually there mm-hmm. and um, was an eyewitness. But there are numbers. The, num- the, the, the final death toll is really, really high and, and that's always been questioned by historians. Uh, but, you know, it, I guess it is a question. So, meanwhile, the Ninth Legion Hispania, led by Peleus Serralius, or Serialis, I'm not sure, was marching towards the besieged city of Colchester. tum tum <laughs> we're going to defeat the Britons, la la la. At some point, though, a force of Britons was waiting in a carefully planned ambush, and the legionnaires were cut to pieces, and General Serialis narrowly escaped by cutting a path through the hordes with his cavalry and riding back to his base. He basically ran away. Aye, but I bet he wasn't even in the centre of it anyway. He was probably at the back. Oh, well, all these (laughs) these, uh, bosses, the big bosses, they're never really in that much danger, are they? The veterans and soldiers and surviving settlers were ultimately forced to take refuge in the walls of Claudius's temple, how ironic, where they managed to hold out for two days, hoping against hope for a relief force. But, as we know, it never reached the city. Finally, the temple was overwhelmed by the Britons. The constant barrage of spears, missiles, heat, fire and smoke over two days was just too much to hold out against. No one was spared. Uh, It was an outstanding success for the Britons and a humiliating and shock defeat for the Romans. As a result of this success, there was a wild sense of euphoria which probably distracted the Britons from the realities of Roman reaction. While many Britons were celebrating their victory... Many were off searching for loot and fugitives miles from where they were supposed to be. These rebels had to be brought back into some sort of organised force which took valuable time and that was plenty of time for the Roman governor, Paulinus, Mm -hmm. to take stock of the situation. He did this by marching to the nearest Roman-occupied city, Londinium, London. Mm -hmm. Had the Britons got their act together... They would have been waiting for him, just like they had General Serialis. But, as previously mentioned, the Britons were a bit giddy and a bit mm, out of control at this point. But also, oh, yeah, but the, they the just like their booze too much. But and... the other thing they could have done, though, is just disappeared. And 
like a like because it's what they've effectively done is terrorism, you know. And instead of marching around going, "Yeah, we killed the Romans," they could have just gone, "What." Nothing to see here. Not what wasn't me, you know, and 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 that would have been well. That would have been rubbish as well because if they really wanted to defeat the Romans, they should have been more organised, like the Romans. Well, you would think you would have thought oh. the sacking and burning of the biggest city. Ah, would have but they were on a their... roll. They were on <laughs> exactly, a roll. Exactly, that was it. They had a thirst for blood. They did have a thirst for blood. Um, Paulinus saw right away that the merchant city of London was unfortified. And its people were doomed. And he had decided to abandon it to its fate. Those about to be sacrificed, basically all civilians, prayed and wept and begged not to be left. But Paulinus gave the signal for departure and the Roman cavalry left. The legionnaires marched away. Many able-bodied citizens tried to leave with them. And at some point, those who could keep up and who were deemed useful to the army were given a place Many other inhabitants would have escaped via the Thames River to safer territories, but many remained behind. I mean, why would you? Why would you remain behind? I well, don't know. You might not think they were coming for you. Or maybe, it's... you know, old people or yeah. children and women. And uh, uh, Tacitus and Dio leave us in no doubt that an immense number of people were massacred in London. Nor do they hold back in describing the horrible way the Londoners met their deaths. In the words of Tacitus, uh, they could not wait to cut throats, hang, burn and crucify. The Britons took no prisoners, nor did they consider the money they could get for selling slaves. It was the sword, gibbet, fire and cross. Dio's account is even more explicit. Those who were taken by the Britons were subjected to every known outrage. The worst and most bestial atrocity committed by the captors was the following. They hung up naked the noblest and most distinguished women and then cut off their breasts and sewed them to their mouths in order to make the victims look like they were eating them. Afterwards, they impaled the woman on sharp skewers run lengthwise through the entire body. Today, there is an oxidised red layer lying about 13 feet below the modern streets of London, which is the substratum of burned debris, which is a reminder to the archaeologist of the ferocity of the Boudican attack. The events of 60 AD are literally scorched into the soil. The Britons would have spent several frenzied days in London, but their thirst for blood wasn't satisfied. Now, they're getting a bit... They are. A bit rad. They are getting a bit rad, as we say up here in Scotland. They swept on to the next town, Verulamium, which is now St Albans, and I'm going to call it St Albans from now on because it's easier. The city wasn't defended, but many inhabitants of this time were able to make their escape in advance. They knew it was coming. They knew the attack was coming. So lots of people got away before they came, which is good. Um, the town was razed to the ground and plundered. And I think probably at this point as well, uh, Burka would have got into a bit of a role and she probably had other people joining. You know, there would have been other people yeah, who would have been secretly probably. annoyed with the Romans yes. who would have been like, ah, right, brilliant, yeah. having a riot. All well, right. that's the way it is. I'll, I'll get my pitchfork. Yeah, well, and, and lots of the Boudican army were farmers. Yeah. So yes, literally, 
Although, did they have pitchforks back no, then? No, no, but I'm just, I'm just, you know. I know what you mean. But, but, I know. I mean, I think, you know, if, you, if you'd if you entered, if you were You're in, going to be gathering force, aren't you, you? If you were in Londinium, right? Yeah. And you were like, actually, these Romans are getting on my nerves. You would just say, right, yeah. don't kill me. I'll join you. Yeah. I'll be with you, you know. And then it could have, you know, there could have been this sense of a civil war of neighbours killing each other and yeah. stuff like that. Um, yeah, uh, you, you, you have a very good point. So at this point, three cities have been destroyed by Boudicca's army. Tacitus tells us 80,000 Roman citizens and allies fell, but there is some doubt over this number, with some experts saying even half of that would have been quite excessive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Meanwhile, Paulinus, the Roman governor, had gathered other legions to his aid and welded together a force of men estimated at between ten and 15,000. They were heavily outnumbered by Boudicca's forces, but remember, these are hardened, experienced, well-trained and disciplined fighting men. Yeah, by this point, they've got organised. Oh, they have. The Romans knew how to fight a war. Well, the Romans, that's what they trained for. Um, Paulinus decided to attack the Britons without delay. He marched his troops to the Midlands in search of a suitable place to stand his ground and do battle with the Boudiccan army. He chose an open area on a hillside backed by a forest with no chance of being surprised as there was no cover. There have been many arguments, so many arguments, over the exact position of Boudicca's last battle. And these arguments continue today. But a plausible argument has been put forward for a site somewhere in the West Midlands. And it's certainly the site that has been mentioned in all the research I've done, so I'm going to stick with it. Fair game. Attention has been focused on a place called Mansetter, which I had never heard of until this Uh podcast research. If you are ever on the London to Manchester train, the route will take you through the supposed site of the battle. And if I was taking this journey, I would buy a drink bottle of wine, a little half bottle of Sauvignon Blanc or something. (laughs) And I would raise my glass to the Queen of the Iceni. Well, if you were going to raise your glass in Manchester, you'd be among friends. No, it's not Manchester, Mm -hmm. it's Mansetter. Yeah, And I'd be on the train, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, if you ever happen to be on this journey, raise your glass. The final battle was preceded by a series of set speeches. On this, Tacitus and Dio both agree. Tacitus's portrayal of Boudicca driving around and around the assembled tribes in her light wicker chariot with her daughters in front of her made a lasting impression. It has become joined to that of the physical description given by Dio of the tall, magnificent, tawny-haired Celt. Together they form the image of Boudicca that is imprinted on the popular imagination. We British are used to women commanders in war, the Queen cried. I am fighting as an ordinary person for my lost freedom, my bruised body and my outraged daughters. She ends with the clarion call to invoke a sense of masculine shame. Consider how many of you are fighting and why. Then you will win this battle or perish. That is what I, a woman, plan to do. Let the men live in slavery if they will. The instructions given by Paulinus to his troops 
were much more brisk. Ignore the noises and empty threats made by these savages. They are more women than men in their ranks. They have no armour or proper weapons and will break when they feel your steel and sense the courage of men who have beaten them so many times already. What glory lies before you? An elect few who will gather the laurels of a whole army. Keep close order. And when you have thrown your javelins, push forward with the bosses of your shields and swords. Let the dead pile up. Forget about the plunder. Win the victory and it's all yours. He also acknowledged the possibility of defeat. Adding on that if they lost, they could expect to be impaled then witness their own entrails being pulled from their bodies to be spitted on red-hot skewers and to be melted in boiling water. So death. Death. He, he was a pragmatic man. It was very much cake or death at that point. No cake, just death. Just death. Just death, death or death. Death or death. So, here have the Romans and the Boudican army come together to do battle. And there must have been a huge contrast in their equipment and their demeanour a contrast that would become more intense as the battle progressed. The Britons, despite their vast numbers, they outnumbered the Roman soldiers enormously, mm. maybe by about three times. Well, you said that, yeah. Mm, there were loads more of them. They weren't really an army as we know it. Most of them were farmers. The long Celtic sword was the main weapon, and they would have had no body armour as such. The ones with helmets, headgear and decent shields would have been the aristocrats among them, and these fighters would have been mounted on the same light wickerwork chariots that Boudicca rode, and from which they would habitually dismount to fight. One of the most obvious differences between the two armies was that the Britons had brought their families along to watch the show. Women and children were parked in a series of wagons at the edge of the battlefield, which I initially thought was just incredible but if you think about it this wasn't that unusual or even arrogant behavior for the Britons who loved to fight and for whom fighting was a serious but also tribal business maybe they always brought their families along I don't know it's well, not so, say, uh, why would why would you do that I just I was, find that so you know, if odd if was a warrior herself then you know I don't know. Some of them would have been warriors as well, maybe. Would you want your children to... No, not your children, no. I mean... Why would you bring your children along? That's so silly. Ugh. Anyway. Well, let's now look at the Roman soldiers. While the Britons rushed about, hurling missiles and shouting taunts, the legionnaires stood their ground, steely-eyed and unflinching. For these soldiers, war was not only a serious business, it was the only business. This is what they had been trained for, in many cases, for much of their lives. This is what they were equipped for, and they were equipped very well. Roman armour was designed and developed each decade, with the sole aim of making every legion a superior fighting machine. Against their naked or near-naked opponents, they wore helmets, body armour to the waist, thick broad leather belts and studded open boots like hobnailed sandals. As for weaponry, the Roman cavalry had lances, while the infantry had a pair of javelins per man, as well as a curved wooden shield. The javelins were seven foot long with a three-foot iron point. Their light wooden shafts made them very easy to throw, 
and once embedded, they must have been quite difficult to remove. Furthermore, all Roman soldiers carried a shorter two-foot sword called a gladius and a dagger, both of which were used in closer quarters. With a great burst of blaring trumpets, the Britons poured towards the Romans in a surging mass. The Romans didn't move. At about 40 yards, the legionnaires moved as one, and 7,000 javelins were in the air, quickly followed by a second volley. As the first wave of Britons fell, those behind them had to climb over them, and it was then that the legionnaires pulled their short swords out of their scabbards and in a smooth, practised motion closed ranks, heads tucked down, charging in a wedge formation which cut cleanly through great masses of Britons, crushing them together in a narrow space. Remember those long swords that the Britons carried? They couldn't use them. They were crushed together in a space that was far too tight. The slaughter was prodigious. As the Britons broke and ran, they were prevented from escaping not just by the Roman cavalry, but, oh, the irony, by all those family wagons. And yes, all those family members were slaughtered too. Even the baggage animals were killed. The family show had become a death trap. Who knows how long this battle raged, but Tacitus does say that the Romans only gained their victory late in the day. So what of Boudicca? There are no written reports of how she spent the battle. Did she fight? I don't know, but I suspect yes. Was she numbered among the thousands of dead Britons? The indications are that she didn't actually die on the battlefield, but afterwards and by her own hand. Tacitus tells us that she took poison, which is plausible. I. It's quite a Roman way to die, though. I don't it know. is. It is. You know, it's the romantic kind. Well, of... there's also Cleopatra. She yeah, died that's... by her own hand, yeah. and and. It probably wasn't a snake. I don't know. Yeah, but this is the thing, is that you know, it's quite a glamorous kind of uh, way to die, you know, and it's uh, something that features in Roman stories. Yes. And so it might not be it, true. It would probably be the first thing that sprung to a Roman mind when they yeah. found out she 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 wasn't yeah. to be found. Yeah. You know, she took poison. Yeah. But as I say, it's plausible that she, she took poison. I just can't imagine a woman like Boudicca allowing herself to be taken into slavery because that's what would ha- have happened if she had been given clemency. Mm-hmm. They would have, she would have been a slave. And Boudicca had already experienced Roman brutality before she even rebelled. So why would she think that the penalties for said rebellion would be less severe? Yeah. As for the Queen's daughters, oh, their fate remains a mystery. Perhaps they took poison too. It's understandable. What's preferable, falling into the hands of the Romans a second time or death? Uh, You know, it's not... I don't know. I think, you know, as I say, stories do have suicide in them. And you kind of think that a a real human being would sort of look at their lot in life and say, right, I'm going to change my name or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, you... You, would you really would you really kill yourself or would you go, you know what, I'm going to marry a nice Roman senator and like, you know, or whatever. I don't know. I mean... Well, these were quite extreme times. Maybe taking poison would have been the, the, the outcome of choice. It, if it was personally, mm-hmm. if it was me, 
I would have gone on the run. <laughs> I just, yeah. I, you know how I love fugitive films. <laughs> I would have gone on the run and I would have tried to live. Yeah. I don't, I can't I, I, see myself taking poison. The only reason I say it is because I think the poison thing is such a kind of mythical oh, end. And yes. it plays into the myth, you know, it plays into the myth. It um, does play into the myth. And also it's such a handy thing, isn't it? Oh, she took poison, you know. Yeah. I would like to think that either Boudicca or her daughters did a runner. Mm-hmm. Ended up in Gaul. And maybe their descendants are still living today. Uh, I don't know. I, I would like to think that. Myth surrounds the burial place of Queen Boudicca. Dio simply tells us that the British gave her a costly burial, which mm. does indicate that she, she died. Yeah. Or took poison. I mean, it does say mm-hmm. that the British gave her a costly burial Mm -hmm. a 17th century theory which became a popular one is that she was buried at Stonehenge I I mean that's a lovely theory but I just can't see how that would be what was her what was her relationship to Stonehenge she didn't have one no I think that you know there would have just been this idea that you oldie Britain yeah Britain I don't I don't think she was buried at Stonehenge Stonehenge (laughs) Anyway, this theory was rebutted by Inigo Jones, saying it was unlikely the Romans would have even allowed uh, uh, this type of remembrance of Boudicca. Although their historians did talk about her. I think that it goes back to what I was saying earlier. They were talking her up because they didn't want, they wanted to show face. They wanted to say, you know, here was a, a great figure. There is a quote um, by Cassius Dio which makes uh, quite a lot of the fact that Boudicca was a woman. And the Romans were ashamed. Yeah. So, hmm, six foot tall, apparently. She yeah. was six foot tall. I bet she I, wasn't. I, I bet she was a I just can't, I can't imagine. Yeah. I always think of um, our predecessors in Britain being much shorter than us. I think and the were. fact that she was six foot always... Uh, but she could have been six foot. There's, there's, you know, that's... She could have been. It's very possible. So there are many places in Britain that have claimed, here lies Boudicca. Among these are a mound on Hampstead Heath, known as Boudicca's Tomb, which is probably a Roman burial site. Various sites around Parliament Hill and Waltham Abbey in Essex. The one that really captures my imagination is the claim that Boudicca is buried underneath Platform 8 of King's Cross Station. (laughs) No. Which is actually an extension of the theory that the final battle was fought where King's Cross now stands. Oh, no, I am sorry. I can't buy that. The reason I like it is because it is quite outlandish. And I have been to King's Cross Station and I have to admit, just the thought that King's Cross Station could be the burial place of Boudicca makes my my trips to King's Cross Station just that little bit less... uh, Stressful. I, I think you know. Surely that that theory comes out of the Victorian age. Oh yes, probably. If, if you think about it, it's King's Cross Station is a temple in its own right, a Victorian temple to the Industrial Revolution. You know, and they wanted to give it that sense of ah. Oh. I mean, we still talk about King's Cross today. You know, it's where um, Harry Potter's secret yes. door oh, is yes. and stuff like yes. that. Yes. Well, is it nine and three quarters whatever. platform? I I, I'm not into I, Potter, well, I'm not so. into Potter, but I know. I think it's. Platform nine and three quarters. I think it's funny though that King's Cross has got this aura about it, you know, and whether that comes predates Victorian time or is is a a sort of 
aftershock of that kind of temple to yeah maybe I, I'm over romanticizing I think it, it. it this captures my imagination because I think I first read that theory in um there's a, a graphic novel called From Hell oh yeah uh, who wrote, can you remember who wrote Alan Moore Alan Moore by Alan Moore and it's a oh it's fantastic it's just a wonderful graphic novel if you, if you've never read it then it's really worth a read it certainly makes you look at london in a different it, way it it has a lot of really fascinating london details and 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 one of these little myths in the, in this book touches on Boudicca and King's Cross Station. The book itself is about Jack the Ripper, but um, it's oh, it's, it's such a good book. I think the thing is as well, though, that all these theories about uh, Boudicca being in London is more about what we see of London now as opposed yes. to what London was like at the time. Well, it was only a stopping off point on yes. her way to St Albans, don't it, forget. Um, and so it wouldn't have had... for for. Boudicca's tribe and for her supporters, it wouldn't have had that same sense of no. importance that we no. now give uh, London. And I think that's the thing. You know, wh- why would they take her to London to the site of one of her battles? It would surely, if she was going to be anywhere, it, if that was the thinking, you know, it would be Colchester where she'd made that first um, massive statement, the the, the yeah. big revenge, the the burning of that great temple. Yeah, I mean, L- London. At the time of the 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 Boudican revolt, was a merchant city. Mm-hmm. It, well, even then, it was a merchant city. But it's not how we think of London now. That's it would have I mean. been quite a sprawling shanty mm-hmm. town. Yeah, that's exactly. what that's what it would have looked like to modernise. Mm-hmm. But it it was a town. It was a city of importance um, because it had the River Thames. Yes, yes, of course. I just mean for her supporters, it wouldn't yeah. have had that significance. No, it would that... not have had the significance that it does for modern. Um, People. I mean, it would be like them saying, you know what, let's go and bury her in that shanty town yes, did on the way to St yes. Albans. I, I just can't buy that. Exactly. You know it's, I mean? it's really she, for, for people looking back, isn't it? I know. Yeah, I, I a, would imagine that they would go back to Norfolk and then lower into the waters and possibly, something like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, why, why London? Why I just London? don't buy that. No. I think it's it, this is something we've put on London since. You well, know? I mean, London... The, the Lon- dark star, as Alex Salmond called, called it. The theory of London <laughs> was based on another theory that the the last battle was in London. It yeah. wasn't that they had gone back to London because London was an important yeah, exactly, um, place yeah. to Boudicca. Yeah, it was yeah. because that was where the fight... They, right, okay. uh, one theory is mm. that the, the final battle took place and she died there and they mm-hmm. buried her there. I guess that makes So sense, I yeah. don't think it's really to do with any of um, anything to do with London being important to Boudicca or, yeah, or yeah. an iconic place back in the day. It was more to do with um, convenience, mm-hmm. maybe, because she died there. But... I'm just going with the uh, theory that the battle was in Manchester, so I don't think she's buried in London under King's Cross. But I just like the theory yeah, yeah. because it's quite—it's quite, it's a place you've It's been. a bit crazy, <laughs> and uh, I do love London. I do love London. So, what of the Britain in the aftermath of the defeat? Well, the vengeance of Paulinus against the Britons was terrible. Even those who hadn't taken part in the rebellion, those deemed to have been wavering, were ravaged with sword and fire. Even worse were the Britons suffering from famine because so many had neglected to sow their fields before departing on their rampage, taking everyone with them. The plan had been to take the Roman supplies. That didn't end well. 
Uh, the Iceni tribe, oh, this is sad, in particular, suffered very badly. Excavations show that a period of repression was enacted against the tribe, including slavery and transportation, and temporary Roman forts were erected in Iceni land for the control and policing of the population. Basically, there was an enforced pacification, and that's putting it nicely. Uh-huh. I, I can just imagine the reality of, of, of what must have happened. The Iceni tribe, so independent and so proud, were made subject to Rome, and they didn't revolt again. And so, here, our story of Boudicca ends. But the story of Boudicca continues to be one that continues to capture the wider imagination. Boudicca captivated Roman writers and historians, who were fascinated by the idea of a woman who could take on an empire. She was the only person in history to unite the Celtic tribes against a common enemy. She was a warrior, queen, mother and total legend. And even though she lost, it's worth noting that had she not become overconfident, she probably would have succeeded in pushing the Romans out of Britain. So, Donna, that's Boudicca, someone who you, in your own words, described as a total legend, you know, um... But maybe looking at historical figures isn't just about looking at legends, but thinking about how, you know, we can build on the past and look back on different things. And of course, as we go through these podcasts, not all of the figures that we talk about are going to have the same kind of like legends attached to them. They're not going to have the same heroic, um, iconic kind of no. things. Not, not uh, in obvious fashion, no. anyway. Uh, many of the women I would like to discuss mm-hmm. are lesser known. Um, that's not to say that they don't have very interesting lives um, and they won't be interesting stories. Uh, Boudicca is probably the most famous Briton I could think of. And... Uh, I I thought starting way back in history might just be a nice start mm-hmm. to to the series of podcasts. That... And I think as you've illustrated as well, Boudicca is someone who captures the imagination and she fires people up because she was such a rebel. She was a famous rebel. She was a famous rebel. And hopefully uh, in further episodes, we'll find out people who've been rebellious in different ways. Oh, yes. And they've not always had this come to the same sticky end. No, there there will be women who have rebelled in their own special ways, but maybe not quite as dramatically as Boudicca. But I thought she was a, a, a good start. Totally agree. So, well, thanks very much, Donna, and we will see you next time. So, if you enjoyed this podcast, join us again for our next podcast about Gallus Girls and Wayward Women. Me too. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.